At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. I'm here with my friend, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, how are you? Hi, Rob. I'm doing well this week. How are you? I'm doing great. I was thinking about what's coming up, right? So like, this is like, it's a big week, right? So you got my birthday, you got I know, Valentine's we got, we Day. Our producer's birthday. Ari's birthday. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Like, so it's, many it's, things. It's, it's like, uh, I, and I was thinking, and then also the Super Bowl. So they moved the Super Bowl back a oh, week. Okay. So like all these things happened to me. And I and, know. So does that like shake up your world a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I kind of like having the shake, Super Bowl around. Shake, shake it off. <laughs> yeah. This is what I was going to talk to. I was going to ask you about. And okay. so, like, so, so the Super Bowl this year, there's uh, the, the Kansas City Chiefs. And we talked about this on the show. Uh, so, Kansas City Chief, yeah. Travis Kelsey is dating Taylor Swift. Will you be watching the Super Bowl? Because I know you don't love professional football. Mm-hmm. Will you be, are you more likely to tune in because of mm. Taylor Swift? No, I don't think so. <laughs> unless she was singing. Is she singing? No. No, she's not singing. She's attending, right? She's just yeah, a yeah. fan. No, because like even I, I do I do have friends that are only saying uh tuning in because of uh Taylor's attendance. Okay. Um, but I will not be. I will watch clips. You watch clips. What about I the halftime show? Usher? Oh, U S H E R R A Y M O N D. I didn't know Usher was playing. How did I not know that? Um that's the thing. I'll probably tune in for that. So, like, I'm, I'll am i follow the text messages throughout the family. There you go. And then so they'll watch, tell like, me the when they have time. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you probably get some some screenshots of Taylor Swift at that time as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. All right. All right. So, okay. So, yeah. I was just wondering how many people would be pulled in that wouldn't normally. Because I think it would be, like, it's going to be the biggest or most watched uh, Super Event. Bowl ever, actually. Oh, Super Bowl? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what was, like, the... Wasn't I know that there was a halftime show maybe last year? Was it with like um Snoop Dogg and they play like Dre ago. songs and Eminem? That, so, what was last year then? Uh, that was uh, Jenna, uh, Rihanna. Rihanna. Then, yeah, when was J Lo and um, I guess <laughs> I do watch them, huh? <laughs> I do watch them. Uh, that was in like 2021, right? J Lo and J Lo and um, Shakira. Oh, I, yeah, I don't know. I think I that know. was 2021. It was a big deal. It was like the first female that was going to get the slot, but then like J Lo had to share it with Shakira. Remember, yeah. there was like a whole ordeal that went down. With, anyways, don't know. No. Super Bowl halftime. Point gossip. is, point is, you're only watching the halftime show. Well, yes. All right, what do we got this week? Not all right. Um, so this week on Inclusive Collective, we'll be talking to hosts of the Equity Gap podcast, Shazi and Narali. 
We'll discuss the recent findings on DNI in the recording studio and the U.S. prison laborers. We'll also be raving about um, Rob, your newfound maturity. <laughs> Bless. Sorry, that's mm. funny. And we'll and we'll I rant. That, yeah, I know you did. <laughs> and we'll rant about diversity statements <laughs> and and about Tesla's latest emission from its shareholder report. Um, but first, let's get to the deets. All right. So again, more 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 Super Bowl relevant material here. So we know mm. the most powerful person in music. No, the world is, of course, Taylor Swift. Yes. However, according to a new report by our friends at the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, there remains persistent gaps in female representation, um, though the data are moving in a positive way. Listen to this wild data. I don't know if you check this out, Matty, but in 2023 in songwriting, right, which is where you see a, quite a bit of uh, lack of representation, only 20% of the Billboard Hot 100 were written by women. Mm. Uh, oftentimes people, many people will collaborate on a hit song. I didn't know this. And to be included, uh, women have to be really good. Uh, <laughs> I would say, but men can be average or acceptable. I know this because I've listened to Justin Bieber songs. Oh, wow. Uh, in the top 100 songs, 25 were female vocalists with no female songwriters. So women not uh, supporting other women. And in the producer roles, only six and a half percent of songs in the Hot 100 had women or female representation. So, Nadia, I had no idea that it was this bad in music. Did you? Yeah. No, I didn't. You know, I, I didn't know this, but also, like, I'm not surprised. Like, women are drastically underrepresented in, like, in everything. <laughs> so, I'm not surprised. <laughs> did you know, just a fun fact here, did you know that I know two songwriters? One of them is married to The Rock because I went to high school with her. Uh, Lauren Hashin and her sister Asia Hashin. So, anyways, those are two song um, songwriters. Um, so, anyways, learning this information it, in the music industry is like so it's it's actually sad to me, and I suppose it's not surprising. Um, I would be curious if there were more uh, to understand, like if what the intentional steps are to that are being made to generate more women artists or performers or producers, et cetera, right, within the industry. I saw there was something about advocacy and activism in the industry in that article you sent. And I would love to learn more around what in specific those are and continue to be. I think good on them to gather this data. I think it's like a, a great baseline from which they can then improve upon. But again, I'd love to know, like, what are they going to do with this data now? Like, who... I know it was like Spotify and some other organization that collected the data, but like now what is it? What do we do with it? Right, know? right. Well, the, I mean, the data is compiled and analyzed by the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. If you remember, they did the inclusion list for movies that we talked about last year as well. So really right. great work that they're doing. And then the opinion piece that you're talking about is from a Dr. Stacey L. Smith. I think I got that right. Uh, they're at USC in Annenberg. And so... Um, and in the article in the LA Times, which we'll post in the show notes, they talk about the fact that it's really up to the, the manager of the artist can be very influential in uh, just asking that their talent, you know, include female writers on, on, on the songs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a ton to actually improve this. So I think it's really good, really good suggestions in that article. And uh, like I said, I was, very, I, was, I was blown away with this bad, uh, yeah. especially because we tend to associate uh, the songwriters with the folks that we see on stage who are, you know, again, the most powerful people in music mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, but they need to do a little bit better job in producing and songwriting. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, my new story this week is the Associated Press conducted a two-year study where they found that um, of the two million people incarcerated in America, around 800,000 of them um, are employed through some sort of work program, the majority of those prisoners being disproportionately people of color. Some of those people who are incarcerated and are um, sentenced to hard labor, they're also forced to work um, and at times paid pennies an hour or nothing at all. So this study that AP conducted sought information from all 50 states through public records uh, requests and inquiries to um, corrections departments and linked they linked hundreds of millions of dollars worth of transactions to agriculture-based prison labor in state and federal facilities over the past six years. They also found that prison labor in the supply chains of giants like McDonald's, Walmart, Costco are using prison and forced labor. Really disappointed about that because I do love a, a Costco run. Also, I'll just add incarcerated people have been um, contracted to uh, companies that partner with prisons. So, for example, in Idaho, some have sorted and packed the state's famous potatoes, which are exported and sold mm. to companies nationwide. If you love a good potato, Rob. Um, mm. In Kansas, some have been employed at Russell Stover Chocolates and Cal Maine Foods, the country's largest egg producer. And then Taylor, I was a little sad to hear this, but Taylor Farms in Arizona hired many incarcerated people. Um, this is a company that sells like those salad kits in many major grocery stores nationwide. And, okay. and they also supply chains uh, to fast food chains like Chipotle. They have since stopped this program, but they had been running it for years. So why am I bringing this up, Rob? Um, well, it's a discussion on, you know, fair labor practices and compensation practices. Um, critics don't believe that all jobs should be eliminated, yet they say incarcerated people should be paired, uh, paid fairly and treated humanely and have safe working conditions, um, that all the work should be voluntary. And then you have on the other side, corrections officer, officers and officials and other proponents that note that not all the work is forced and that prison jobs save taxpayers money. <laughs> they, they also wow. argue that workers are learning skills that can be used when they're released and given a sense of purpose, which could help ward off repeat offenses. And then in some cases, labor can mean time shaved off of a sentence. Um, and that the jobs provide a way to repay debt to society. Again, this is kind of what the proponents of of this thing thought. <laughs> there's there's just so many things. There's so a lot so of the, a lot things. of those points are, are, are accurate, right? It does give them purpose, and and uh, it you know it can be. There's a lot of good things, um, but you know if, if you work if you work, you should be paid fairly, right? So you can start by paying people. Uh, you know, a living minimum wage, which of course we don't have, thanks Joe Manchin. But <laughs> you know, think about how far it would go in terms of like, getting people back on their feet, or, or or you know, helping them repay their debt to society when they leave prison, or for their families. If we had a twenty dollars minimum wage, if you, if while you work in prison you could accrue that, that money could be invested, or it could go to your family, right? right totally. Um, and and you know, with the the bullshit about like repaying your debt to society, yeah, like, you're, like, you're making a, you're right. making frosted flakes, right? Yeah, like, like you're. You know, like if anything, you're making you're society like, worse. I'm a, you're, it's literally like a, it's like it's literally very similar to like going to pick cotton in farms. Like this is how oh. 
It's so it's cra- it's crazy. It might actually to me. be cotton farming as part yeah, of this, right? Like absolutely. In, in certain places in the south. So so obviously no one wants these people or their families to do well. Um, the conditions are safe. So if they get hurt, they should get workers comp, right? OSHA protections should apply to these folks because they're sure. creating a product for private companies. Um, so yeah, it's slavery. And, you know, just in this case, the state is the master. Um, you know, it's, and, you know, one really, like one, I everyone should read this article, right? And I wouldn't yeah. have seen it if you had sent it to me. So, you know, really great piece of journalism. The AP did this story. And so just, you know, we think about things like this, like is, yeah, this is why we want quality journalism, right? And so um, the the AP brought this to the company's attention. So the companies Mm -hmm. are saying, oh, gee, we didn't even know this, right? Like, so, so it's really important. You would hope the U.S. government would give a shit about something like this. Yeah, you would think. That that someone would be on this, but you can't even get people paid fairly that aren't in prison, that didn't commit any crime or were convicted of a crime. So that, so. Anyway, I obviously I thought this was just bananas and yeah. uh, everyone should check out this article. Totally. We'll make sure that we post it. We ha- we'll have it in the show notes, et cetera. Um, Rob, it's it's I mean, you had said like the state is the master. I actually think like consumers can be the master. You know, there's examples in the article of the major corporations. They were like, you know, McDonald's, General Mills, Gold, Metal Flower, um, even Whole Foods that had responded. They, in particular, Whole Foods had flatly denied that they, they, you know, they do not allow the use of prison labor in in products sold at their stores. I think it opens up our eyes as consumers to understand where these goods are come from and who's touched it along kind of that process of getting it from, um, what is it, from like, you know, farm to shelf or whatever it is. And so um, I think it's important for us to know as consumers where, you know, what practices go into getting the goods that we purchase. For sure. Yeah. No, again, a very important article and, uh, you know, very illuminating in terms of what we are purchasing. And so I encourage everyone to check that out. Uh, Nadia, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we will be joined by our guest, Shazia Nirali. Stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, folks. Welcome back. So our guest today on Inclusive Collective is equity, inclusion, and justice practitioner and host of the Equity Gap podcast, Shazia Narali. In Shazia's nine to five work, she's an equity, inclusion, and justice practitioner who centers equity deserving people while teaching those in positions of power to use their privilege to advance equity. She is the host of the Equity Gap podcast, which speaks to race, gender, and other intersections of marginalized identities 
in the workplace and beyond. She also works with organizations to speak on anti-racism, equity, inclusion, and career strategy for Black, Indigenous, and racialized women. And when not working, you can find her leaning into community, anchoring her energy towards amplifying Black, Indigenous, and racialized women to show up in the world and take up all the space we desire and deserve. I love that, Rob. Shazia, welcome to Inclusive. You love it too. Shazia, we welcome you to Inclusive Collective. It's so great to see you again. Thank you so much. I'm so excited and honored to have been asked. Shazia, it's great to meet you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Start with, uh, you are uh, an EDI practitioner, primarily in Canada. You live in Canada. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the places I may have to move to at the end of this year, at the end of 2024. So Yeah, same. I have this impression of our northern neighbors as being somewhat more progressive and uh, sophisticated with the, with regard to EDI issues. I don't know if that's the case, but so just start with what are some things that are that are different uh, or uh, in some way materially for Canada versus U.S. with regard to EDI? Yeah, it's such a great question. I always say that we are just a little more polite about our racism, <laughs> a little bit more insidious and it, it shows up for sure in very you know quiet ways in a lot of times and we definitely suffer from a lot of similar sort of experiences with police brutality and racism mm-hmm. inequities and in healthcare in our systems we have a really long history in our country as well around um indigenous and colonization and we've been on a path for a number of years of trying to do some sort of reconciliation with indigenous communities mm-hmm. but so much of it is still really performative and you're seeing so many of these things come to the surface, even with what's going on in the world um, with Israel and Gaza and politicians really not, you know, showcasing any sort of empathy or leading with a justice lens. And it just showcases a lot of what we navigate through as a country. It is um, very much about white supremacy systems and people not recognizing that. And I particularly live in a province um, of Alberta here in Canada Mm -hmm. that is particularly conservative, um, probably very similar to a lot of Republican states in the U.S. in terms Mm -hmm. of our leadership and our government. And there is a lot of pushback around the quote unquote woke culture and the Mm -hmm. sort of zero sum game when it comes to this idea of what equity really means. And um, we had a, a freedom convoy that that took place in post-pandemic and mm-hmm. folks feeling like their rights were being um, infringed upon with respect to vaccine mandates and, you know, seeing very different responses from our police systems and our government in, in responding to that with respect to how they showed up and the levels of force and the levels of energy that was given because it was primarily white folks that were complaining about these things versus folks showing up for Black Lives Matter and for Um, you know, Palestine and Gaza and just getting a really different level of engagement and response from politicians, from police. Uh, We just hide it a little bit better, but we're very much. (laughs) So we've infected you. We've (laughs) just by, by proximity to the U S you get all the bad stuff. Is that, that's. Oh yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though. I thank you for sharing kind of, um, kind of those similar systemic, you know, issues and systems of oppression that we absolutely experience and see, you know, not in just everyday like society and communities, but also um, in the workplace. So you had shared with Rob and I um, that you are a first gen Pakistani Canadian Muslim, a dog mom, um, a, 
a late life diagnosed ADHD -er, um, and, and you had mentioned working and, and playing in traditional uh, Treaty 7 territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And some might argue that um, you're working in what, what, what is an untraditional kind of industry choice for our Pakistani ancestors. I know, right, like many of us were raised to be these like doctors or engineers, um, sort of that like model minority type of work. And I'm curious, based off of your amalgamation of like your own identity, how much of your identity has informed your career choices? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think, um, you know, as a racialized woman, there are certain parts of my identity that I can mask and hide. Like, you don't necessarily know that I'm Muslim. You don't necessarily know that I have ADD and neurospicy. Um, but those things will come out definitely in interactions and engagement with me. And, you know, those are parts of my identity that I've also had to navigate through in terms of reconciling that in my own brain. Because even just being Muslim has always been something that I've held with an, an inner knowing about what my faith is really about, but then an external influence around being gaslit, around being a terrorist and having all of these layers of hate that are really rooted in that identity. And so a lot of that has been a very shameful part of my past. And in the last number of years, I've come to realize that I need to own all of that because it brings so much richness to the lens that I bring to the work. But really what primarily got me into this space was the experience of being a racialized woman. And I remember a number of years ago at a different organization that I'm at right now, uh, I ended up moving into leadership and it was a pretty big company, like 5,000 people. And I was the only woman of color, racialized woman in leadership for this organization in HR in particular. And then the rest of the organization, maybe there was one or two of us sprinkled in there, you know, for good measure. Of course. And yeah, and it was, it was conversations with my, my really good friend, Susie, who's Korean Canadian. And we would sit there and we would talk about like, is it just in our heads? Is this like something that we're seeing that we look at the world differently? And, you know, is it in our heads that we're recognizing that we're not represented and that the way we look at how we're treated and, that's kind of where the conversation started getting a little deeper for us and where my entry point into this work really started. I ended up becoming a leader for our women's network at that organization, uh, really trying to take an intersectional lens, understanding that we all don't start from the same places. We all different, have different struggles. And yeah, the Muslim identity piece and the neurodiversity piece has come to fruition a lot more in the last number of years. I just was diagnosed with ADD, I believe it was last year, mm. and I'm 40. I think I just turned 44. I get them all mixed up at yeah. this point. I know. Right? We start counting after 40. <laughs> yeah. Right. All the same. Just because we have yeah. in some ways. So, yeah. um, so that was an interesting revelation. And it's now informed a lot of the ways that I see my past and how I see even my justice sensitivity and the things that I'm so passionate about and the way that I look at the world is so different than a lot of my other um, colleagues or leaders that are in this space. And it's informed a lot of the way I show up because I'm so aware of these things that I have had to be aware of for so long, things I couldn't hide, right? Yeah, I'm sure like your sense making is started, right? Like you've learned so much more about yourself that absolutely makes more sense of how you kind of show up in the world. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Shavi, you also host the Equity Gap podcast. You started uh, all the way back in 2019. Uh, so, you know, yeah. tell me about why you, why you started it 
And then I'm just, you know, thinking about the journey from 2019 to today, what has changed? And then what are some of the conversations you hope to have in 2024? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, it goes back to the same conversations that Susie, my friend yep. Susie Co and I would be having when we were working together and we wanted to do something that started to bring light to our experiences and stop gaslighting ourselves into believing that um, it was just in our heads and that we needed the data to always prove our experiences. Mm -hmm. And so it started off with her and I um, really literally sitting on my living room couch with my iPhone in between us because we were had no idea what we were doing and we would just have conversations and we would record them and we started to just get a lot of feedback that people felt really seen. And for the first time, these conversations were coming to the light that we didn't think we were allowed to have. And, you know, through the pandemic, Susie had to step off because she's got two young kids and was trying to manage so many things during that time. And when she stepped off, I thought, you know, maybe I could take some of the experiences that I've had in my very non-traditional, unconventional career as, you know, the model minority and all of these different detours that I've taken. And I can share some of that insight with folks and especially for Indigenous, Black and racialized women to see that the path can look really unique to you and not based on what your family thinks that you should be doing or what society tells you you should be allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And so I went down that arena for a while. And then when I formally moved into equity and inclusion work uh, in my career in the last couple of years, I had this realization that people didn't understand what equity actually really meant mm. and how it really shows up and applies in day to day and how powerful it can be when you take that lens in workplace solutions and everything from the way that like cities are designed to, mm. you know, customer experiences, right? Looking at it from that lens. And so I did a bit of a rebrand. The podcast used to be The Color Gap and now The Equity Gap. And for this year, I want to go harder and deeper into conversations that are a little bit more unfiltered. I think I'm working with a coach right now to try to sort of bring some of the quiet things out loud and say some of the stuff that's in my head out loud. I'm, I was a little bit gun shy about it with um, an experience I had with a previous employer putting me through a pretty vicious like investigation, going into my podcast and trying to paint me as someone that was like too disruptive for them talking about white supremacy mm -hmm. before I was moving formally into my role to lead inclusion and diversity for that organization. So the irony was not lost on me. With I, know, that. I know. Yeah. So really going deeper on these conversations around solidarity, advocacy, white supremacy, systems of oppression. Um, I just want to bring more of that voice forward in a way that feels more unfiltered and less civilized per se, because I think we're always as women, particularly, and, you know, South Asian and Asian women, we're told to stay quiet and submissive and people don't necessarily expect that. But I want to start breaking through some of the, that noise to bring a different perspective. I personally love that. And well, at, and cheer you on um, from the sidelines. Absolutely. Um, th thank you for sharing that. And you know, you you had also shared with us that you recently co-authored a toolkit on solidarity and advocacy in the workplace for um, the United Nations Global Impact Network in Canada. Could you share a little bit more around what that is? Who are you hoping to receive that um, in the hands of? Like who who can benefit from kind of working with that toolkit? 
Yeah, I love this question. It's something the project was like one of my biggest, most proudest accomplishments because it was the first time that I've been able to do work in the equity space where someone wasn't censoring me. It was beautiful because I got to partner with um, Dr. Gulnaz Gulnaragi, who runs a social enterprise called Accelerate Her Future that's focused on mentorship, reciprocal mentorship for Indigenous, Black, and racialized women and early career talent and folks that are in business and STEM. And through Accelerate Her Future, we got the opportunity to work with the United Nations Global Compact Network that is really focused on um, intersectional gender equity in Canada. And the actual toolkit itself was designed for workplaces for folks to really understand how do you start to walk the walk when it comes to all of these things that we talk about around diversity. We want to talk about these areas of belonging when we're not actually addressing root causes of what's happening. We're thinking that people leave their racist thoughts and their biases at home when they come into the workplace. And we're not actually solutioning from a lens of real talk and you know, conversations that are really rooted in solutions that actually address the lived experiences of your most marginalized team members. And not only from a race and gender lens, but from a disability lens and from a neurodiversity perspective and, you know, all of the different intersections that you can see from that. And so it was just a labor of love in the best way. And to partner with with Golnaz, who I'm very close to in the last number of years, uh, was so empowering and impactful. And it's a really long toolkit. And I, I know I'm very aware that we didn't design it actually very intentionally with that adult learning kind of philosophy in mind, because we didn't want to appease to the idea that it needed to fit in a certain way for people to digest it. Mm. We did it very intentionally, very straight talk. We talked about historical context of Canada and the things that we've navigated through as a country that we spoke about at the beginning of the conversation that People suddenly think that we're over all of these things, that there aren't these intergenerational effects that are happening mm. to our Indigenous communities and our Black communities in particular. And we went there with real talk about all of those things. And we talk about really understanding where you sit in the wheel of privilege and seeing what you can do to actually take a risk to stand for someone and to stand beside them and to amplify their voices. And how does it show up in sponsorship? And are we talking about saviorism when we're looking at mentorship and trying to save people in different ways? And so it was real straight talk, real um, direct. Uh, it's really long, like I said, but we did it very intentionally to not make it so that it had to appease a certain audience, but that it was done with authenticity and and in the way that we wanted to put it out in the world. Yeah, and I think, and in, in, I'm interested to, to learn more. I mean, you brought up uh, Israel, Palestine, Right. In terms of, you know, we, I, I brought up the election, right? So here in the U.S., we'll be dealing with a ton of emotion this year in our workplace. And, you know, how are you thinking about, you know, you don't have an election until, what, 2025 there? So you get, you yeah. get, a, you get a, a year off. Um, you don't have to deal with that. What we, we're dealing with this year. But you know, a lot of emotion around Israel, Palestine, and the workplace, a lot of emotion about elections. So. What are, you, what are your thoughts on just on, on, on coaching and, and, and helping people get through and navigate uh, all these uh, very emotional times? Uh, because we do go to work and those and we're constantly around people that may not share the same you know ideologies and, and uh, perspectives that we share. Yeah, for sure. I have my like outside perspective that I use in my personal life and my advocacy and 
all of those things. And then I also recognize in a corporate context, right, there's a lot of different, you know, things that you're navigating through as an organization. And I think where I've tried to focus um, the organization that I'm with is around centering people and just like leaning in to actually know what's going on in their worlds. Like if you're a leader, if you're aware that the fact that you might have Jewish or Muslim, Palestinian or Israeli team members, like you have to be aware of that and know that people carry this emotional tax when they walk into the workplace. Like we don't suddenly remove all of that anxiety and fear. And we've seen across Canada, across the US, this rise in anti-Semitism, a rise in anti-Muslim hate, that rhetoric that's just bubbling up, right? And it's so simple to me in the sense that leaders just need to give a shit, to just care and to ask mm. and to know about your people. You don't need to make this bold statement as an organization um, to be able to just demonstrate care and to lean into people's humanity, which, you know, I had a conversation with someone in a pretty senior position at my organization the other day about a decision-making rubrics that I put together around this is the start of the things that we're going to be really aware of as a society because we now have access to social media. We're all paying attention a little bit more. We're going to start to see climate refugees. We're going to start to see water wars that are probably going to happen in the next little while. And if we're not prepared as an organization to take a consistent approach where if we've donated money because of the Ukraine war, but we're not going to do that in this situation because it feels too contentious, then we're not being consistent and we're actually showing our cards in the wrong way. And we're not approaching things from a lens of humanity and the people that are working for your organization. And so I think it's just about honing in on the human element of things. People are hurting. They're in a lot of pain. They're very nervous and afraid and anxious. And to not acknowledge it means that you're expecting people to just show up and put on their mask and pretend that all is fine mm. and that doesn't fly. It yeah. won't work. You're going to burn people out that way. Well said. Such great reminders for folks and also just like a, a great reflection piece for leaders, anyone that might be listening on perpetuating those systems of oppression by doing right just just yeah. that. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, we're at the end, but I have so many more questions for you. So I hate that we have to end this, but I, that just means you'll have to come back. Um, we usually end with our um, guests providing like a resource. And I, I do encourage our listeners to check out Shazia's website, check out um, the, the toolkit um, that uh, that you co-authored. Um, also, um, you had mentioned Accelerate Her Future. Maybe I mentioned it, um, but that you are a mentor. I was hoping you could just dive a little bit deeper in terms of what that is. Um, what you've learned in that space and perhaps that be the recommendation for folks to check out if you're open to that. Yeah. Um, but what are like the impacts of the mentee-mentor relationship that you're seeing? Yeah, I love this question because I am the biggest uh, cheerleader and fangirl for Accelerator Future because they have literally changed my life. I've been mentoring with them for, I think, the last three years. I just keep coming back. They can't get rid of me. <laughs> you know, I just... I'm sure they welcome it. <laughs> yeah, they allow me back in. So it's great. And uh, they're really focused on group mentorship and a very reciprocal type of dynamic. And so I just had one of the sessions last night. It's a virtual um, career mentorship program and it's it's based in Canada. I know we have some folks that are U.S. based, so there's probably room for that as well. And we do have mentors that are white. We have primarily the mentors that are Indigenous, Black and racialized women. And 
you don't have to be a people leader, but that is, you know, ideal if you've got some sort of, you know, trajectory in your career as a mentor to be able to provide that insight. And the reciprocal element of it is so beautiful because a lot of these young women are coming with these life experiences that, you know, they're able to share and I'm able to learn as a mentor from them. Um, it's a weekly program. It runs for, I believe, about three months in different cohorts throughout the year. And they have things like learning labs where uh, one of the sessions that I love is by a woman named Siobhan John, who's based in Toronto. And she does uh, a session on self-care as um, activism and the connection and the roots of Black activism and self-care is that rebellion element of things that they weren't really allowed to access. And so there's a lot of learning labs. There's the group mentorship sessions that happen every um, two weeks. And it's an incredible program that has changed so many things for me because I get to help other women kind of avoid the same pitfalls that I've had to navigate through. And I am very much a proponent of don't change yourself for the system battle the system within to make sure that you're not having to mask all of these parts of who you are. And so my advice that I always provide the mentees is really from that lens of you can find the places that you will be able to be much more of your authentic self. And it may not necessarily be accessible earlier on in your career, but there's going to be opportunity for that to happen the more you grow. And it's amazing the fact that I get the opportunity to do what I never had when I was that age, um, starting out in my career and the things that I wish you know, I had ex access to, and it's very real talk. It's really vulnerable. There were a lot of tears shed last night in our session. And oh. yeah, it just shows that folks really, I think, are craving a space like this to be able to have that kind of honest dialogue. And so just encourage anyone to check it out and to check out the work that uh, Dr. Gulnaz uh, Gulnaraki is doing. She's an incredible change maker, has completely changed my life and the trajectory of my life because she's really honed in on this from a very unapologetic lens, which has given permission to all of us to do the same. That's great. Well, Shazi and Norali, so wonderful having you on this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective. Thank you to both of you. It was so great to connect. Thanks, Shazi. Thanks. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back for our Con Reflections and Raves and Rants. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Just finished chatting with Shazia Nurawi. Nadia, mm. what are your reflections on our, our best It sounds like you're really, really into so the things that Shazia was saying. Oh, I mean, I when I first met her, I was like, we're, she probably doesn't want me to say this because she doesn't want to be like associated as a twin. But I was like, we are twins. Like, I just, I, I feel very, uh, I know. She's like, no, we're not. No, a lot of she's, pressure for Shazu. Yeah. I know. No, she's she's wonderful. I mean, I you know, it's it's interesting to meet someone who is in the same type of work, line of work, industry, um, you know, kind of is passionate about the same things and then has a very, very similar background in terms of being, you know, North American, Pakistani, Muslim, not going that taking that traditional route in terms of um, career choices. But then also having very similar experiences around like being racialized, discrimination, et cetera. And so I, I appreciate it. I've, I just appreciate her in general and just the work that she does, but then also just sharing those components of her background and experience with us. And then I also this is a second time. Uh, actually, two more things. I do love that she called identified like neuro spicy. That's the second time that I've heard cool. that phrase. I think it's like a, a thing and I, I'm going to stick to it. I love that. Um, 
And then I also love that she's that she was um, encouraging leaders to think about how data is important, but you don't need data to prove experiences. Mm. And I think that's really important because it's it really is about going and talking to the people that work for you and and um, have the shared organizational mission and goals. It's really understanding kind of what their um, experiences are and that it, that goes beyond just like a, a, a piece of tool or data that you collect through a survey. Right. It's like, go just go talk to people, go learn, mm -hmm. go sit with them and and learn and engage. What what were your thoughts and takeaways? Oh, nothing to add. I like those points. And then, you know, just very excited to check out the toolkit. Uh, and just really had some very helpful advice in terms of thinking through how to be a good manager, you know, as we as we move into a very emotional time, uh, particularly in the U.S. with regard to elections and workplace conflict. So really, really great. Really enjoyed having her and uh, hopefully she'll come back and talk to us again so yeah i hope so too um all right so let's let's finish up here nadia let's do mm -hmm. some raves and rants we're a little rant heavy today I'm gonna, i know i'm gonna rave about myself i'm gonna pat myself on the back here okay uh because it's my birthday uh this coming week and, yeah happy early know, birthday someone, someone sent me a text that was trying to like bait me and get me wound up about a former employer and some of the things that they were doing okay. and guess what Nadia? i didn't take the bait you know you, so like you didn't take so, it <laughs> so at the age of almost 48 i'm uh you know I, I i now have as much maturity as like a normal person that's like 20 so you know like Rob, I, you I'm, are evolving before I'm evolving. my eyes i'm evolving I, right? I, I love it yeah um all right so here's a here's a quick rant you know, we're going back to you know Nadia, I have been critical of anti-DEI legislation, and you can get some of our thoughts in our newsletter, which you always give. You always say it doesn't really exist, but it really exists. It like exists. It, it's it, out there yeah. right now. Latest yeah. edition. Get a lot yeah, of time. Check it out, everybody. Yep. But, um, you know, a big problem that the anti-DEI folks have with diversity is with diversity statements at universities, right? So if you want to apply for a faculty position, you'll be asked to submit a statement or an answer a question about what you think about diversity. Uh, and, and so I went to the University of Pennsylvania to see what, uh, you know, obviously a terrible place, right? Like going to uh, conservative activists and looked at some of the things that people are asked to write responses to. And you wanna hear a couple of them, Nadia? Yeah, I would love what to. What does diversity mean to you and why is it important? Uh, what role do you believe that advising and mentoring play in working with diverse populations? Does your engagement with diversity help students prepare uh, for careers in a global society? So, Nadia, mm -hmm. none of those strike me as Marxist. Um, answering those questions will not mean that you have to vote for Joe Biden or drink a kale smoothie or get an NPR tote. They are things that are very just relevant to leading in organizations and, you know, in this case, teaching. So, yeah. um, if you're the kind of person that gets really upset about those things, I think I know everything I need to know about your thoughts on diversity. So, all right, all right, Nadia, what do you got for us? Rant, we will. So, your favorite CEO, Elon Musk. Oh, right, yeah. is uh, yes. being is part of my rant today. So, Tesla removed language concerning minority workers in its latest regulatory filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, following mm. comments from the company CEO Elon Musk on diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. So 
the decision to omit these references to DEI initiatives and this year's filing comes just weeks after Tesla chief Elon here posted a series of comments attacking DEI efforts in corporate America um, on his X platform, where he stated, quote, DEI must die, end quote. Um, so that's my, that's just my informative rant. <laughs> yeah. Headline. For today. Headline. Elon sucks. Yeah. yeah. That's basically it. Yeah. That's basically no. it. Yeah. So. Yeah. You've, re- you've referred to the, to something called X and I'm not, I'm not sure what that is. Okay. So, <laughs> right. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, but thanks for that. Yeah. Sure. I do with that information what you will. I think, Nadia, that will be it for Inclusive Collective. Just a reminder that if you're looking for DEI and Workplace Cultural Strategy Consulting, Problem Solving, or Training, you can reach out to Nadia at Nadia at NasConsultants.com and to Rob, that's me, at Rob at TacanoConsulting.com. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilia Media and is edited by the wonderful Ari Maffei. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Ari. Uh, uh, we would love to hear from you all. So send us your feedback at collectiveadvertorium.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Be sure to follow up on LinkedIn so you can get that very, very handsome newsletter that I uh, was talking about earlier. Do it. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again to our guest, Shazia Morali. Back next week. Thanks, Nadia. Thank you. Be well. If you go, wanna hear you go